0: When Blake took the senior pastor and preaching baton here at EFC in January of 2021, I had been preaching through 2 Corinthians, making it through chapter 5, verse 15, six verses shy of chapter 6. So now, two and a half years later, I'm thinking, well, why not just keep going where I left off? When I get to sub in this pulpit. Well, that's what we'll be doing today and next Sunday. And yes, it's been a while. So let's catch up a little in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there. Paul described the believer's heavenly dwelling. He encouraged their desire to be courageous and living to please the Lord. And he opened up his own heart, his motivations and convictions. The revealing of his heart to them is especially important because there were still some very influential people in that church who were opposing him and questioning his apostolic credentials, his authority, and even his conduct. This divisive behavior threatened the very purpose and existence of the church. The last verse we covered in this letter, I'm sure there's one person in here at least that can remember that, was one of those verses that opens your heart to the much bigger purpose of why we're sitting here this morning. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15, We read, and He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ's death on the cross was substitutionary, meaning the death on the cross effectively paid for all the sin of all those Christ came to save and make alive as they trusted him in believing his gospel message. Paul told the Roman believers in Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul lives as one completely overcome, by the magnitude of what Jesus did for him. His love for Christ and rescuing Him and then calling Him to represent and deliver His message to other lost people has humbled Him to His very core. Yet He knows this Corinthian church is on the verge of forgetting the truths of the gospel, and many are listening to ungodly and divisive voices in their midst." Knowing this is what's going on is very important to remember as we think through how and what Paul is writing in this letter. These issues drive what he says. The truth that Paul emphasizes highlights God's mercy and grace in Christ. And as verse 15 says, genuine believers should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. This is not a suggestion. Who we are living for is the biggest issue and battle that each and every one of us face every single day why because we so easily drift back into a selfish lifestyle centered on me and my needs and my wants and my desires we also quickly forget who we are in christ And in this Corinthian church, Paul was pointing this out in every possible way because he recognized a growing selfishness that was fed and encouraged by some people claiming to be Christians but who were definitely not. In other words, he knew where the danger was And he knew how to address it. With some new method? No. By applying gospel truth to life. Later in chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul describes the dangers in their midst this way. This is incredible. He waits till toward the end of the letter. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, this situation is very serious. Now, faced with all this and dealing with it in this letter, as you can imagine, is a daunting and humble task. And what we see are straightforward and honest explanations in answer to the Corinthian questions that they had sent to him. And he'd also visited once. Along with exhortations, encouragement, reminders, instructions, and a lot of his heart being revealed. Paul deals with their confusion and who is stirring much of it up by helping them remember that both knowing and applying the truth are necessary in learning to walk with the Lord. Not one or the other, both. He wrote in verse 9, the end of verse 9 here in our chapter, we make it our aim to please the Lord. And to do that, we have to preach these truths to ourselves every single day and every time we notice our hearts drifting away from the truths of the gospel. Is this easy? Does it come naturally? No. It's empowered by God's Spirit, but we have to, to decide to do this every day, depending on his power as we do so. To do that, we have to preach these truths every day or we'll see ourselves drifting. And when you see yourself drifting, you preach these truths to yourselves. Podcasts are great. You learn a lot but the podcast doesn't exactly know what you're doing at that moment. So you need to have a repertoire, a scripture that you can call to your own heart. So the question is, do you desire to live for him in every area of your life? If you do, if you want to learn how to do this, if you want to go that direction, then watch where Paul goes next. If you are able, would you please stand with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 16 through 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So starting in verse 16, we read, From now on, therefore, you might have noticed there's three therefores just in this one paragraph. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Now Paul is opening the door of his heart even more, and he's letting us see how deeply God has changed his own perspective of other people and the Lord Himself. And this is a huge step in applying gospel truth. How has he learned to regard and make assessments of people without zeroing in on their outward appearances, their foibles, their sinful behavior, their weirdness, which is what the flesh is getting at here. We all tend to do this, do we not? Notice he says we, which means he's including everyone who claims to know Christ. Paul, remember, had more to brag about than most any Jew on the face of the earth before God got him. He writes about this in his various letters, but now he says he is able to look beyond worldly standards and appearances and prejudices, and what does he see? Lost people who are bound by and in their sin who need the Lord Jesus. That's who he sees. And of course, the change that changed everything in Paul occurred in his assessment of Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus from actively thinking that Jesus was a heretic, a false messiah, and worthy of death, to finding out in a very up-close and personal way that the one he was persecuting was who? The Lord. Let's look at what happened. In Acts chapter 26, verses 9, 10, and 11, This is Luke's account of Paul, whose name was Saul. It was changed after he became a believer. When testifying before King Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, and not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's who Paul was. And then in Acts 9, verses 3-6, through Luke records this about Paul. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, Paul came to know Jesus for who he really is God incarnate, the Savior, the Lord of heaven, the true Messiah, who alone fulfills all Old Testament promises and provides forgiveness for sin. I doubt if anybody in here has had such an experience. But you don't need to have such an experience. God works in lots of ways to get us. But Paul knows he had just been gotten. No doubt. In verse 17 in our text begins with the second, therefore. <clears throat> because his conclusion is, is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Elsewhere, Paul writes for people in the churches he founds to imitate him. Why? Did you ever think that was bragging? No. He saw God change him. So much, so completely, that he knew that others could benefit from his example. This transformation because of the new birth not only starts instantaneously, but is a lifelong process of sanctification. That's the part that we don't like so much until you realize completely what God is doing everything begins to change because God has implanted new desires, loves, inclinations, and truths. This has been described by someone as living in the midst of the old creation with a new creation perspective. And this perspective as it is nourished and developed over time, helps believers gain victory in the battle against sin, conforming them to the image of Christ. Now, we don't see complete and final victory until we leave this body and come face to face with the Lord in our heavenly home. For all the young people missing today, they don't even have a clue what that means because they're not old. Many in here are starting to understand this in very new and important ways. True. But the Lord promises to finish the work that He started. In other words, it's interesting that the more we grow in understanding the perspective of what God has actually done to save us and make us His own, we not only grow to desire Him. Better, to know him better and better. But we also become more and more aware of just how sinful every part of us is. Now that sounds tragic, but God uses everything, especially this, because he knows that this actually drives us to grow in our dependence upon him. It makes us stop when we're going to brag or think we're hot or whatever it may be and go, man, the last time this didn't work so well. I think I need to depend on Christ more and cry out to God for His mercy and grace in every situation where you find yourself doing that. This lifelong process may not happen in the way we would choose, But don't you think knowing best how to bring us closer and closer to the Lord and love and trust and contentment is something God knows how to do? And every time we buck this, we are sticking our hand up in His face. That's the truth. He does know what He is doing. Whether we think so or not. And he is committed to doing it. Who else can you trust with promises? So in verse 16 and 17, Paul has laid out what God has done for us in Christ. If we're in Christ, we are a new creation. If we thought Paul was just rambling in this letter, we now see better that he is connecting his heart for the Lord with the ministry that God has called him to. Again, we've got to remember the troubling reasons that Paul wrote this letter and the courage it took to write and deeply care for these people and this church's issues. Yet, in and through it all, as Paul says in chapter 11, that I read earlier, what he does, he will continue to do. How can he do that? He knows the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he depends on. Jesus working in and through him. In Jesus' power. And this is applying gospel truth as he defends his integrity so that these people would see a huge difference in his life and those selfishly disrupting this body. He's building up to the amazing identity and calling that the Lord has called every believer to. So... Let's go on. In verse 18 and 19 we read all this is from God. It's not his plan. Paul's plan. It's not something you learned at a conference somewhere. This is all from God. And through Christ and though and through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what God did and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, only in the New Testament writings of Paul do we find the use of these words, these terms, reconciled and "reconciliation." God is always the reconciler. And sinners are the ones needing to be reconciled. Why? Because human beings broke the relationship with their maker in sinful rebellion. In other words, we humans receive reconciliation with God through Christ. We don't accomplish it. Also important to note is that if God did not, in His grace, design a way to accomplish it, then no one would ever be reconciled to God. So through Christ's person and work, all the sin of those to whom He came to save was removed and completely paid for through Christ's perfect and costly sacrifice on the cross. That God then gave Us, the ministry of reconciliation is just astounding and should be seen as a privilege, not something to run from. The phrase reconciling the world to himself has thrown a lot of people into thinking that every person in the world will be reconciled to God and experience salvation known as universalism. But this must not be understood that way and cannot be understood that way because the Bible teaches that most people will suffer eternal punishment in a very real hell. If there is a very real eternal punishment in hell, which the Bible emphasizes from cover to cover, then Christ did not actually and effectively pay the penalty for everyone's sins, or they wouldn't be there. In several places, there is a sense conveyed that Christ died for the whole world. Examples are John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. <laughs> Twice we find Jesus Christ called the Savior of the world. And in 1 John 2, verse 2, we read, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this seems like a huge dilemma that's going to throw us on track. It is not, it is what we call an apparent dilemma. And it must be understood to mean that the world as used in Scripture is usually not referring to every single individual in the world, but to humanity in general. In other words, Jesus chooses to save all kinds of people, every kind of person, from every race, nation, and ethnic group. And let's not forget, in the last part of verse 19, the magnitude of God's grace to those He saves. To those He reconciles to Himself, He does not count their trespasses against them. God's reconciliation means that He genuinely and truly forgives our sins. You know, David said a lot in Psalms this is one of the most honest and most apparent for all of us. He writes in Psalm 32, first two verses, Blessed or blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In verse 20, we learn that being given the ministry of reconciliation means that, therefore, here's the third one, we become ambassadors for Christ. It's hard to say this without smiling God making His appeal through us. An ambassador is both a messenger for and a representative of the one who sent Him. Which means believers are messengers and representatives of who? The Lord God Almighty every one of you are representatives and messengers of Lord God Almighty. If you know him, don't slide down in your chair. Let's explain this. Ambassadors usually live in a foreign land. And I don't think as many believers believe this as they should, but so do we. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul says in Philippians 3.20 that we are primarily citizens of heaven. And Peter notes that we represent our king in this world where we live as aliens and strangers there's not a person in here who doesn't work way too hard and get mixed up in the world that we live in, that we want to own completely, that we want to run, that we want to take control of. Now, our picture of an ambassador, if you've got one in your head right now, um the probability is that that picture sees some powerful person with connections, dressed to the nines, articulate, whining and dining the other powerful people in the world they're in. But let's be real, that's no excuse, because people like that only represent a very small percentage of people in the world very small so god has called every single one of us to be ambassadors for him wherever we are which if you think about it is really everywhere he has his own people everywhere with a few places that are still waiting to hear the gospel But most people groups in the world have been reached. And people are trying very hard to make that every single one. Some over and over again. Every single one of us is an ambassador. Just look around sometimes, even in this room, and look at where we all are. But think how many believers you know. Real believers in other churches here, there, around the world. Everywhere. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is the greatest plan ever. He did not need to sneak in agent so-and-so into this setting in order to get what he wants accomplished. God has his people everywhere and you are one of them. And it's about time all of us owned up to that. Willingly, gladly, appreciatively got it out. Now this will look different for every believer, but Paul's point is that we belong to the Lord and represent him in every situation we are in. In actions, behaviors, demeanors, speech, Stores, playgrounds, workplaces, vacation. We represent to others the one who saved us and we belong to. Who we belong to takes precedence over any other affiliation or commitment that we have. I hope you heard that. Most of us in here want to be loyal, friends, neighbors, citizens. There's a place for a lot of that. But the number one affiliation you have is to the Lord. And boy, does our culture need to see this now. This is what our culture needs to see. Because we, we see this confusion in our culture that's starting... That's our starting point in thinking seriously and thoughtfully about how not to place our hopes in horses and chariots or political solutions. Your your most serious hope should not rest there. That doesn't mean you can't, if God's placed you somewhere to work on it, to work on it. But you can't put your hope completely there. It's in the wrong place. Our hope must be in the Lord. And get this, what people must primarily see from us are demonstrations of the fruit of the Spirit as we navigate through our own particular circumstances. I read this somewhere this week and just dropped a pen. I thought, man, does that sum it up? Let me say that again. Our hope must be in the Lord and what people must primarily see from us are demonstrations of the fruit of the Spirit as we navigate through our own particular circumstance. How many times did the Lord have to tell Peter this? He finally got it. Do you love me, Peter? Hey, if Peter can get this, we can in God's work. Marty and I used to tell our young girls to remember their name whenever and wherever they went. <clears throat> Y'all ever done that? We were serious about this. Then when they had come to face in the Lord, the name took on an even higher meaning. It was kind of a neat step. John eighteen thirty six. Jesus said to Pilate, I think Blake just went over this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Whose kingdom are you most loyal That's a question each of us have to answer. And it's a battle with what we're confronted with every day. Voices from everywhere telling us this, telling us that. Every kind of topic. Is it not? There's another therefore. The third one is in verse 20, and it tells us that Paul is summing up his points. Think about this. This says... God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, is making His appeal through us. Think about the last time you lost it in a store on the road with your spouse, with your kids, at work, On the playing field, everybody has those experiences. true. What do you do when his spirit's going, humble yourself, cry out to the Lord for mercy, and be reconciled in that situation if you've just gone ballistic? That's the life that we're called to. Let's review the flow of this last paragraph in chapter 15. Paul lays out what God has done for us in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Then he explains how God reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then we find out that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation by entrusting us with the message of reconciliation as ambassadors for Christ, which means... He will make his appeal through us to those in the world. You know, there's a kicker here. Do you know what I mean by that? It should be hitting his readers and us as we look at this verse 20 again. Last part of verse 20, we read, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. I thought this was written to Christians. Mostly. Do you see it? Let me explain. The battle not to live for ourselves but for Christ will always be there. But when there are some people in the midst of a congregation who are claiming to be believers and yet have a way of life that consistently over time reflects the world's attitudes and desires and thinkings and behaviors and they're not willing to listen or even do anything about it, confusion and doubt can reign and ruin lives. This is especially true when there are a few others who arrogantly assert themselves as the real spokesman for God. These guys were in this church and are actually contradicting the teaching of the true apostle who had planted and founded the church and Paul who had stayed with him for a year and a half when he established it. Now Paul's already laid the gospel groundwork to confront the Corinthians with what they are really doing and who they really are. If their lifestyle reflects a consistent disregard for the Lord and his word, and especially if they are part of the divisive and toxic atmosphere that is troubling so many other people, then Paul is including them in this earnest request to be reconciled to God. He's imploring each one of his readers to examine themselves by laying out and applying the gospel in a way that reveals, again, the whole purpose of knowing and belonging to Christ. Every pastor knows there, must, there may be a few in the congregation who are not really what they claim to be. So when the gospel is clearly seen in the Word, and it's conveyed and taught and explained and applied, in a way that does not just assume everyone present knows it already, that's important. This means that God's power is unleashed as he sees fit in his people, and his people are affected and nourished, encouraged and loved. Every pastor worth his salt also knows that learning to apply gospel truth is a wondrous lifelong pursuit and process the key word for church leadership usually is patience. Patience. Patience with me. Patience with whoever. Patience. God's grace. God's mercy. There is never a time when it's just okay to think that it's time to go on to other bigger, exciting, mysterious doctrines because we got the steps of the gospel down pat. I've heard that over the years, many, many years ago, right here, and I went, That got to be trouble, but he didn't come back, so I didn't have to worry. So we see real believers who are in every stage of growth and maturity, and we see some who come, but are still questioning and trying to figure it out, and we're loving on them and explaining and answering questions and being what patient. And we see there may even be a few deceitful wolves in sheep clothing who are using the church atmosphere for their own sinful desires and devices. This was not the only church in the New Testament. Paul warned some elders came from the church in Ephesus about this. Notice that Paul's imploring in the last half of verse 20 is aimed at all of them and all of us. We implore you, or let's get real, y'all. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So each person is still being appealed to so that everyone hears the truth of the gospel and is responsible for how they handle it. He is depending on the power in God's gospel to make clear where where, and who the real problems are coming from. Now this last verse here in verse 21 is known by many Christians and hopefully most of y'all as the great exchange because it concisely explains the exchange between Christ and us in his work. And he does it in such a powerful way, but notice that it's very few words. Paul is not always wordy. In fact, this bothers some people because it's so concise and it's Paul. They want more here, but it's everywhere else. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The meaning of the atonement and justification is made clear here. Here are some short explanations to sum some of this up, most of it up. Paul One person wrote that Paul wants to say more here than Christ was made a sin offering, so he kind of did, but he wants to say less than Christ became a sinner because that would give the wrong impression too. God treated Christ as if he were a sinner, and Christ became the object of God's wrath and bore the penalty of sin in our place. Jesus had no sin, period. In other words, there was never a sinful act or an attitude in or from Him that was sinful. Being in Christ makes believers righteous before God. This means that just as God imputed our sin and guilt to Christ, what did God impute from Christ To us. Righteousness. And you're going, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, we still have a sin nature here. But as we stand before the Lord, he sees the righteousness of Christ around us. That right there is enough to just fall down on our face and sing the hymn of response. In other words, because Christ bore the sins of those who are his, God regards, accounts, and treats believers as having the legal status of righteousness. Our sin was exchanged for Christ's righteousness because of who he is and what he has accomplished, his person and work. Believers are forgiven and justified because of and in the person and work of Christ. And that's it. We need to pray. Please bow. Oh God, how perfect and magnificent you are and how merciful and gracious is your work in and through your Son to save and make your people your eternal possession, to know you, love you, serve you, worship you, As we live in this world and learn to depend upon you for absolutely everything. Apply our minds and hearts to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.